Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity that we have each week to uh, learn our faith together and to uh, have a few laughs. And, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, Fulton Sheen makes many of us have a good belly laugh or two. Uh, he had this uh, brand of humor that touched souls uh, week in and week out on television. Uh, I think of his numbers where... Uh, it was recorded that 30 million viewers tuned in each week to uh, listen and watch Fulton Sheen. And he had the attention of the masses. He really did. And uh, again, he had a way of talking about spiritual things and um, making them very relatable to people. And um, today, uh, again, he will share with us uh, a reflection titled The Misplaced infinite and uh, I think see, we don't talk about the infinite enough and it is a conversation that um, sometimes we're afraid to have um, <laughs> you know <laughs> to have someone say you know we're gonna live forever and will that forever be in heaven or will it be in the other place uh, or something like that and uh, it makes us ponder it makes us ponder what uh, our end will be and uh, where will we go um, sometimes a scary thought but Fulton Sheen had a way of just uh, bringing um, this conversation to a peaceful end and uh, he will do that with us today uh, and we'll also uh, of course learn our faith together uh, this catechism series that we've been sharing uh, there's actually 50 lessons in the catechism series and uh, we're on lesson number 30 where Fulton Sheen will talk about the Mass. And so uh, may I just welcome you again, and without further ado, may you enjoy this reflection from Fulton Sheen titled, The Misplaced Infinite. Friends, uh, this past week we received a letter from a mother in Chicago who had a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter by the name of Caroline. And it seems that just about the time of the start of our television series, the mother said, someone whom you like very much on television is coming back now. And the mother showed little Carol Ann our picture and said, now, Caroline, who is this? And the little girl said, red buttons. <laughs> These two clocks on these cameras do not agree. <laughs> I shall go by this one because it gives me more time unless they change the other to meet it.
You've heard all sorts of proposals and suggestions about making a better world. And have heard an analysis of our world. May we suggest that there's nothing that ever happens in the world that does not first happen in the mind of man. And therefore, it might be well for us to analyze the modern man or the modern soul. We will describe the modern man and present him, rather, in terms of this semicircle. Now, this also includes woman. I know of a professor of anthropology, a woman professor who began her course by saying anthropology is the science of man, and then she realized something else. She said embracing woman. So we include women here. <laughs> Notice that it is open at the top in order to indicate that man has transcendent and infinite interest. Here at the top is life, truth, Love. In their perfection, which is the definition of God. The normal man, normal human being, was meant to have open relationships with perfect life, truth, and love. Now man is made up, first of all, of a body or flesh. Secondly, of mind. And thirdly, man has relationships with things outside of himself, in other words, the great world that surrounds him. The normal human being recognizes that his body, his flesh, has given him the capacity to experience a certain amount of carnal love. This love normally is to be seen as a spark that is caught from the great flame of love, which is God. No one who believes in this kind of a universe, and all sane men do, would ever say, for example, that sex is wrong. Because God has given this creative power to man, which is to be used according to God's laws for the increase of the human race as a remedy for his passions and also to establish mutual friendship with the one that he loves. Therefore, it may be illustrated in some such fashion as that. Secondly, man has a mind. And the mind of man is able to take up things which are below him, to bring them into his own intellect and spiritualize them. For example, when this chalk is known by my mind, it has a new kind of existence than it has here in the external world. Therefore, the human mind gathers material for truth into itself, and at the same time that it does that, it realizes that it is also open for another kind of proof that can come from above. And we express this normal relationship of the human mind to God and of mind to God by this life. Thirdly, man has relationship to things outside of himself. Things are necessary. That is to say, private property. It's necessary, first of all, in order to assure his own economic freedom and also to give him social existence, he must work for the prosperity of the world. The superfluities that he has, he will give to the poor. 
Maybe you'll send some to me to help me on my missions, too, incidentally, which isn't a bad idea. Now that I happen to think of it. Therefore, all things will be used in a divine sort of way to help spread goodwill among men. This is the normal way that a man lives. Now, suppose you cut off God from man. Then you have man down here without any destiny. Now, man cannot live without a God. That is impossible. So he has to make his own God. He generally will make three gods. The first god will be his own body. And he will turn that into an adoration of sex. And he will attempt to compensate for a want of an eternal divine destiny by the intensity of erotic experiences. Secondly, Man will make another god for himself, which will be egotism and pride. He will assert that there is no knowledge outside of what I know. There is no law outside of my own will. I must always be pleased. The result is that civilization becomes nothing else but a conflict of individual egotisms each one affirming his own will, resulting in jealousies, bickerings, slanders, and to put it most mildly, want of charity and brotherly love. And then the third God that men will make, you know the only perfect thing that I draw is the circle. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> I'm real pleased with myself when I draw a circle. <laughs> Some men, instead of using things sacramentally, that is to say, to help them cultivate virtue and lead themselves to God, they just simply adore business. And they know they have nothing on the inside, so they attempt to compensate for it by aggrandizement of externals. And they think they're worth something because they have something. The result is that this God becomes avarice or greed. These are the three kinds of deities that the modern world is worshipping. The misplaced infinites. The false gods. And we have three psychologists who are concerned with these abnormalities, or rather psychiatrists. Freud is concerned with this kind. Adler, who gave us the inferiority complex, is concerned with that kind. And Jung, the greatest of all the psychiatrists, is concerned with this. Namely, Jung is interested in explaining away man's desire for security. Adler, the desire for inferiority. Freud believes that Man is the way he is simply because his sex has been repressed by a superego. This is the superego. With what result? 
that this modern man is suffering as a result from anxiety, and he's also suffering from despair. First of all, modern man is full of anxiety because he sees a tremendous disproportion between what he is and what he ought to be. He feels like a fish that's been caught in a net. The more he struggles, the more he becomes entangled. He feels suffocated in his tiny little world, breathing always in the same air that he breathes out. He feels like a mountain climber who cannot see the peak of the mountain on account of the fog. But down below he can see the abyss. The result is that life has become boring and tiresome and full of anxiety. And from that has come despair. Because the man who lives in this tiny little circle does not open at the top to the infinite, can see nothing ahead of him but death, annihilation, and destruction. And hence comes despair, dread, fear, trembling. So that his last end is, as Baudelaire put it, the last sacrament of a skeptic is suicide. This is our modern man. Now there are four horsemen in literature that correspond almost to the four horsemen of the apocalypse who have described modern man. Some of them have taken a very evil approach to explaining modern man. They are all useful to know. The first of them is Kafka. An Austrian born in 1883. The second is Kierkegaard. Of Copenhagen. Born in 1813. The third, Dostoevsky. The Russian. Born in 1822. Nietzsche. Born in 1844. All of these men belonged, as you see, to the last century. And they describe modern man without God as no psychologist has described him. They were not all believers. Kafka, for example. In his work, The Castle tells of a surveyor who is bound to report to the man in the castle, but he never can get to see his superior. It's always tomorrow, maybe next week. Kafka, under this symbol, attempts to present modern man who does not quite ever achieve his destiny simply because life is meaningless. And then in another one of his works, which is the trial, there is Joseph Kafka, Notice no last name, just Joseph, Joseph K., not Joseph Kafka. Joseph K., no tradition, no family background. He's sentenced for a crime. He's brought into the courtroom. The courtroom is in total blackness. He does not understand the charge that is against him. He does not understand why he is condemned. And when he is led out to his death, his last words are, like a 
dog. Kafka's not anti-moral. Kafka's not anti-God. Kafka was just a modern soul. Could feel something of the punishment that the godless soul was experiencing and could describe it well, but could offer no solution. And then there came Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, who was laughed at during his life, said, Copenhagen needs a dead man. He said, when I die, I will be known all over the world. So he is. He first went in for a kind of a life of pleasure. And then he courted a girl by the name of Regina Olsen. And then suddenly he began to think of Regina Olsen as standing for the world. For the world that he said was full of woe. For the Europe that he said in the last century would be spiritually and morally bankrupt in the 20th century. And he felt, therefore, the only way that he could ever decide for the right kind of life was to repudiate Regina's. There was nothing wrong with poor Regina. And he did it in a very ungentlemanly and very unchristian sort of way. He describes it all in his two-volume work, Either Or. Kierkegaard chose God. But what is interesting about him is that understanding the modern world and the modern soul gave details of the fear and the dread and the trembling of modern man who feels, as Kafka said, a punishment and yet never gets a release. Kierkegaard said we had to make a leap of faith like Abraham and God to find peace. The solution was not altogether right. It was a bit unsocial. It was certainly unhistorical. But what is interesting about him, and the only reason I quote him is that he knew what went on inside the modern heart. And then we come to that great rush. Sometime, maybe, I might give a whole telecast on this astounding man Dostoevsky. Kierkegaard was concerned with the individual. Dostoevsky with the world. Dostoevsky said that in the 20th century Russia would beget an antichrist would spread its errors and its doctrines throughout the world. He said that the 19th century was producing a false kind of liberty. False liberalism which was a liberty without law. That, he said, is license. And license begets chaos. And he said, in order to organize this chaos, the 20th century will turn to dictators and to tyrants. And throughout European countries, there will arise dictators. Socialism will begin to sweep the world. Where men will say, I do not want to be I. I cannot bear my loneliness. I want to be we. Russia, he said, will turn into a great and tremendous ant heap. 
Socialism will tell them what games they are to play, what papers and books they are to read, who they are to marry, and what they shall think. Dostoevsky understood the evil of communism as well as if he had passed through it in China or behind the Iron Curtain. His interest was more the social effects of this godless man. He described it so well we may tell you more at another time. Now we come to someone who shared with Dostoevsky and with Kierkegaard one thing, namely a hatred of the milk-and-water Christianity that they knew, which was nothing, as Kierkegaard said, but a kind of a trickle of public morality, a trickle. Nietzsche, born of Christian parents, but he repudiated them. And Nietzsche said, God is dead. We need, he said, a superman. People no longer want to be themselves, and there will be a masked man in the 20th century. And he said there will be dictatorships in the 20th century, in Russia, and in Italy, and in Germany. And Russia will eventually conquer China, and India, and all of Asia. And Russia will be he did not say Russia would, but there will be, he said, a transvaluation of values. By that he meant that the supermen of the 20th century, these tyrants and these dictators, would turn the world upside down so that what was good would become evil, night would become day. He said we ought to accept Christ, but Nietzsche said I hate him. And he wrote a book about him called The Antichrist, and he said... Since we cannot accept him, we ought to go mad. It was the only logical thing that Nietzsche ever did in his life. He went mad. He became a raving maniac the last 11 years of his life. These were the four horsemen of literature, some of whom were religious men and others were anti-religious as was Nietzsche, particularly. Now, to sum it all up, what is the story of modern man and therefore the world? There are two things that are supposed to go together. One is the misery of man. That is to say, his worries, his trials, his difficulties, his sorrows. And the other that is supposed always to go with it is the mercy of God. Our modern world has split and divorced the two. It has separated the misery of man from the mercy of God. And when there is only the misery of man, what do you have? A terrible, diabolical despair. Despair, dread, and trembling. When you have the mercy of God without the misery of man, what do you have? Pride, arrogance, 
what Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard and Nietzsche condemned. A milk and water Christianity that was without any kind of sacrifice in it. When the two are put together, man has peace. When he recognizes on the one hand his own sin, and on the other hand recognizes a redeemer, then he has peace as he hears coming from out of the darkness the words, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavily burdened, and find rest for your soul. A life must be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. It must be understood backwards in the sense that we must know why we are living, namely to save our souls. It must be lived forward in order that we may always attain that goal. Bye now. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this week to listen to a little bit of the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Very sobering thoughts. Uh, Fulton Sheen was talking about uh, many of the troubles in society. You know, he mentioned... Russia and communism uh, a number of times on his television show and uh, but again was not afraid to say even with all this turmoil even with all these difficulties it is about the soul talking about saving souls and one of my favorite quotes from Fulton Sheen comes from his book Peace of Soul uh, back in 1949 it was a New York Times best-selling book but it begins with the line, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. It's the most important thing in the world is to save a soul, including our own. And Fulton Sheen was reminding us that uh, important message today. And so uh, we have to do what we can to not only save our souls, but uh, save other souls too. And so uh, thinking of heaven, thinking of uh, as Fulton Sheen said, the misplaced infinite, that, um, again, heaven is forever. And I think of St. Therese of the Little Flower and a story that she uh, recalls of being on the porch with her father and she was looking up to heaven and saw uh, the stars and the letter T she spelled out uh, in the stars and said to her dad, Papa, my name is written in heaven. I know I will be there forever with God. And, you know, I paraphrase sometimes, but I think you can translate that into a simple phrase to say, you were made forever. Get used to it. Get used to it. Uh, St. Therese of the Little Flower got used to it. She knew she was made forever, that God had a plan for her, that uh, he, she was to get to know him, love him, and serve him in this life and be happy with him in the life to come and so uh, hopefully we can learn that valuable lesson from saint therese uh, to take this time here on earth to get to know god to love him and to serve him and to hopefully one day be happy with him for all eternity in heaven now speaking of eternity i think many of us when we go to holy mass we feel uh, like it's heaven on earth and so uh, I pray that uh, you will get to Mass, uh, not only on Sundays, but a few times through the week, because it is 
uh, when we go to Mass, we, that we are fed uh, through the Eucharist and all the graces that come by attending and assisting at Holy Mass. So uh, today's catechism lesson will be on the Mass, and so I will uh, hand the microphone over to our good teacher, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he again gives us this catechism lesson on the topic of the Mass. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. A great American patriot once said that he regretted he had only one life to give for his country. He meant that his love was greater than his sacrifice. That his life could be given only once in time and therefore could not be repeated. It is very different with the life of our Lord. Though the life was given once, it is eternally given. And it is eternally given and repeated in the sacrifice of the Mass. In this lesson, we are going to describe the Mass in terms of three of its principal parts. The offertory, the consecration, the communion. First, the offertory. This takes place when the priest offers bread and wine to God. Our blessed Lord, at that moment, if we may draw an image, is looking out from heaven saying, I cannot die again in the human nature that I took from Mary. That human nature is now glorified at the right hand of the Father, the pledge and the promise of what your human nature is to be. But I can die in you and you can die in me. Will you therefore offer yourselves to me? I can add nothing to the sacrifice of my love except by and through you. Now we begin to offer ourselves to him under the species of bread and wine. Let me tell you how this was done in the early church. If you would have come to Mass in the early church, you would have brought some bread and wine. You also might have brought some linen, fruits, wheat, oil, wool, and other things that were needed by the religious community, that is, by the church. The priest would have taken all of these gifts, piled them up at the side of the communion rail, to distribute them to the poor after Mass. But the bread and wine which was brought, he would take some of that and use that for the offertory of the Mass. Now we no longer bring either bread and wine, nor do we bring these other things, simply because today we live in a modern world where money is the medium of exchange. Instead of bringing bread and wine, we bring that which equivalently buys bread and wine. The important thing is that when we offer ourselves to God, we do so under the appearances of bread and wine. Why did our blessed Lord use bread and wine as the symbols of our offertory? I can immediately think of three reasons. First, in order to signify our unity with one another and in him 
in the mystical body of Christ. Just as a unity of grains of wheat make bread, and just as wine is made up from many grapes, so too we who are many are one in Christ. That is the first reason. Another reason is, perhaps no two substances in nature traditionally have so much nourished man as bread and wine. Bread is the marrow of the earth. Wine, its very blood. In bringing bread and wine, therefore, we are bringing those substances which have most nourished ourselves, given us life. Therefore, we are equivalently offering our lives or ourselves on the altar. A third reason, wheat and grapes have to suffer a great deal in order to become bread and wine. Wheat has to pass through a winter then it has to be subjected to a mill and to fire before the wheat can ever become bread. Grapes, in their turn, have to pass through the Gethsemane of a wine press before they can become wine. So too we who offer ourselves to Christ are destined to sacrifice. Therefore let us take those substances from nature which have given us life but which indicate in their very being the need of sacrificing and suffering in order to be united with Christ himself. We, therefore, at the moment of the offertory of the Mass, are not passive spectators, as we might be in the theater. We are going to be actors in a great drama. We are standing, as it were, on the pattern that the priest is offering. We are in that chalice. We are participants. We are co-offerers to Christ, through him to the Heavenly Father. If therefore we understand the offertory, we realize now that we have offered ourselves. That brings us to the question, what happens to us? The answer to that is given in the consecration. The priest, it will be recalled, is only the instrument of Christ himself at the altar. The Christ is the priest, Christ is the victim. When, therefore, the priest pronounces the words of consecration, he is only giving, loaning to our blessed Lord his voice and his hands. At the moment of consecration, the priest says over the bread, This is my body. And over the chalice of wine, This is my blood. At that moment, there takes place what is known as the mystery of transubstantiation. Trans means across, 
substantiation refers to substance. This mystery means that the whole substance of the bread becomes the whole substance of the body of Christ. The whole substance of the wine becomes the whole substance of the blood of Christ. Notice we use the word substance. Now just as a subject has predicate, just as your personality wears clothes which are purely accidental to your personality because you can change clothes, so too bread and wine have what are known as accidents or appearances or predicates or species. Now after the moment of consecration, the bread looks the same as it did before. The wine looks the same. That is to say, the sensible appearances do not change, but the substance of the bread changes, the substance of the wine changes into the body and blood of Christ. How do we know they change? Because our Lord said so. Is there any better reason in the world? Our blessed Lord said, This is my body. This is my blood. We believe. The next question is, Very well, we have offered ourselves with Christ. And the consecration is a repeating, a bringing up to date, localizing, a representation of the death of Christ. How is the death of Christ represented in the consecration? Well, notice that the priest does not consecrate the bread and wine together. He does not say, this is the body and blood of Christ. First he consecrates the bread, then he separately consecrates the wine. First, this is my body. Then, this is my blood. Now, notice that that separate consecration is a kind of cleavage, a tearing asunder, a kind of a mystical sword that divides the blood from the body of Christ and that is how he died on Calvary. That is why the Mass is called the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, while Calvary itself was a real separation of blood from body. Not that this is any less real, but that it is not as sensibly presented as it was on the cross. But this is not the whole story of the consecration. Remember we offered ourselves under bread and wine? See what has happened to the bread and wine? It's the body and blood of Christ. But Christ is not alone in the Mass. We are with him. What therefore happened to us? We died with Christ. The words of consecration, therefore, have a secondary meaning. 
The primary meaning is very clear, that we've given. This is the body and blood of Christ. Mystically divided by that separate consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord renews the sacrifice of Calvary. The vine sacrificed himself on the cross. The vine and branches, which we are, now sacrifice themselves in the Mass. So the secondary meaning of the words of consecration is about the branches united to the vine. So we say to our Lord, really, this is my body. This is my blood. All that I am. My body, my blood, my intellect, my will, all of my desires, intentions and motivations, all that I am substantially are now thine. I die with thee, divinize them, transubstantiate them, change them, so that I am no longer mine but thine. Oh, the species of my life, the mere accidents, what I do in life, my peculiar duties, let them remain. They are only the appearances. But what I am in my essential relationships to thee, that make divine. I die with thee, O Christ, on Calvary. That is the consecration. Now we come to the communion. Remember that in the offertory, we were like lambs that were being led on to Jerusalem. And in the consecration, we are those lambs who were offered in sacrifice. Now in communion, we find that actually we did not lose anything at all. We did not die. We recovered life. We die to the lower part of ourselves in the consecration of the Mass, and we get back our souls ennobled and enriched. We begin to be free and exalted. We find that our death was no more permanent than the consecration than was the death of Christ on Calvary. In Holy Communion, we surrender our humanity, we get back his divinity. We give up time, he gives us his eternity. We give up our sin, we die to it, he gives us his grace. We surrender our self-will and receive the divine will. We give up petty loves. He gives us the very flame of love itself. That is communion. Now, because communion is so very important, we want to dwell on three particular aspects of Holy Communion. First, Holy Communion incorporates us to the life of Christ. Two, Holy Communion incorporates us to the death of Christ. Three, Holy Communion incorporates us to the members of the mystical body and their joys and sorrows. First, in Communion, we 
have unity with the life of Christ. That is to say, the whole Christ. The Christ born in Bethlehem, the Christ who lived in Galilee, who taught, who suffered, died, rose from the dead, is at the right hand of the Father, and is infusing his life into his mystical body. We receive that divine life in communion. Our blessed Lord said, He that eateth me, the same shall live by me. Actually, we do not so much receive him. As strictly speaking, he receives us. We become incorporated to him. There's a kind of a transfusion. Just in the physical order, as there is transfusion of blood or life, so to here there's a tremendous transfusion of divine life into our souls in communion. And that is why at communion we always have such a deep sense of unworthiness. And the communion prayer is Domine non sum dignus. O Lord, I am not worthy. Is it not true that in human love the beloved is always on the pedestal, the lover always on his knees? And so in divine love we protest our unworthiness as we go to the communion rail to receive the divine life because we die to our lower life in the consecration. Divine Lover invites us to his banquet. We poor, destitute creatures. He holds us in his embrace. Really, if our faith were strong, we would crawl on our hands and knees to the communion rail. And apropos of that life, our Lord said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives continually in me and I live continually in him. Secondly, communion is not only incorporation to the life of Christ, it is also incorporation to the death of Christ. Here is something that we very seldom think of. We always think of communion as a relationship of life, but as a relationship of death. St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, It is the Lord's death you are heralding whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup. Why is there a death involved? Simply because we have not yet passed into glory. We have our old Adam with us. All of our sins, all of our concupiscences, our prides and covetousness and avarice. And we have to die to all of these. As the consecration itself suggested, when the farmer plows corn, he's very interested in life, but he's uprooting weeds, is he not? In other words, the condition of having the life of the corn is to bring death to the weeds. And the condition of having life of Christ is to bring death to the old Adam? Does not the gardener, when he nourishes the flower and cares for it, battle against insects? 
And in order to protect this divine life, we too have to bring some kind of penance and self-denial to that which is lower. Furthermore, if our Lord died for us, then we have to die to ourselves. And notice that after the resurrection, it was the relics of his passion and his death that he showed men. Mary Magdalene wanted to achieve that glory of the resurrection, and our Lord said, Do not touch me. But he said to Thomas, Touch my hands. Put thy finger into my hand. Put thy hand into my side. In other words, Thomas, you may commune with my death to see that I am the risen life. I believe that is the reason why the church ordains fasting before communion. In order to be sure that at least we will be incorporated in some tiny little way to the death of Christ before we receive his life. The third point concerning communion is that communion is not only incorporation to the life of Christ, incorporation to his death, but it is also communion with all of the other members of the mystical body of Christ. This is what we forget. That when we receive communion, we are being united with every other member of the church throughout the world. Your body, for example, is made up of millions and millions of cells. These cells are nourished by blood plasma or lymph. It courses through all the gates and alleys of your body to nourish and repair. It knocks at the door of each individual cell. It offers its treasure. Now what that blood plasma does to your human body is a faint, far-off echo of what our Lord does for his mystical body. The mystical body is made up of persons, not cells. Instead of human, human nourishment, there is the divine life of the Eucharist. And this Eucharist is the divine lymph, as it were, of all of the cells or persons of the mystical body of Christ. And as St. Paul says, the one bread makes us one body, though we be many in number, the same bread is shared by all. The lymph makes the body one, the Eucharist makes the church one. The communion rail is therefore the most democratic institution in the face of all history. We are communing therefore at the rail, not only with every member of the church, but with the joys of the church wherever they are in any part of the world, and also with the sorrows of the church, the trials and persecutions, for example, in mission lands. Therefore, every communion will make us more and more conscious of helping the society of the propagation of the faith in order that this body of Christ may grow, and in order that we may be more conscious of our communion, one with another in the body of Christ. That is the Mass. And thanks to it, we have the real presence. Our Lord is on the altar. Think of what our churches would be if we did not have that red tabernacle lamp telling us that our blessed Lord was there in his Eucharistic presence. We would just be meeting houses, Prayer halls, that's all. We would almost feel that we were standing alongside of the empty tomb of Easter morn and an angel were there saying, 
he is not here. But thanks to the real presence of our Lord in our churches, the Eucharist is the window between heaven and earth. Thanks to the real presence, we look out to heaven. And heaven looks down to us. That is why we can pray better there. We are praying before our Lord. Our Lord is just as really and truly present in the Blessed Sacrament as I am present before this microphone as I speak to you. Although the manner of presence is different, but it is the Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our love. God love. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you once again for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together. And, you know, I cannot uh, help but... Uh, repeat some of those um, words that Fulton Sheen said in that reflection on the Mass. He mentioned uh, the opportunity we have when we receive Holy Communion uh, to make a beautiful exchange. Uh, He said, we give God our time and he gives us his eternity. We, We give him our petty loves and he gives us the flame of love. We give him our self-will, and in return he gives us the divine will. We give him our humanity, and he gives us his divinity. Uh, And of course we give him our sin, and he gives us grace. And um, just what a beautiful opportunity each week to have that exchange. And so again, this is why I think we love Fulton Sheen. He makes uh, things come alive. The Mass in its uh, beauty comes alive. And... um, Again, I may have to replay this uh, recording on the Mass because uh, there is so much there. And may I encourage you to purchase a copy of the book, Calvary and the Mass. Uh, he uh, released that book in 1936, and uh, many of us have re-released uh, this classic edition. I know I have uh, one available uh, through Bishop Sheen Today Publishing. So if you go to Amazon.com, and uh, you know, type in Bishop Sheen Today Publishing or Bishop Sheen Today, and you will find our edition of Calvary in the Mass. It's actually called Calvary in the Mass, The Two Summits of Grace. Uh, of course, um, the source and summit of our life is the Eucharist, and of course, Calvary was a summit also being on a mount. So again, uh, available on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold, uh, Calvary in the Mass by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. May I invite you to visit me on our website at uh, bishopsheentoday.com. There are literally hundreds of videos that you can watch from Fulton Sheen's uh, great collection of television shows and reflections, uh, audio archives of many of our old broadcasts that you can replay, and of course a a great list of books that uh, Fulton Sheen Uh, wrote over the years. Uh, There's over 60 of them, and so they're available through purchase on the web at our website, bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, thanks again for joining me uh, for this uh, weekly opportunity to learn our faith together and to uh, know that our life is worth living. And so until the next time that we meet, 
May the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.